The following is a conversation. It has the features of any conversation, such as imperfectly expressed thoughts, ill-considered opinions, and the notions of several sleep-deprived brains. Try not to get your stethoscope in a twist about it. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the Short Coat Podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews. By students, for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcoat.com. Decision struck down the right to abortion as one guaranteed under the U.S. Constitution, and that has huge implications for for women across the country, but also implications for medical students. Question: How are we going to be able to get residents their required abortion training? Trust for doctors is already dwindling. It adds this extra layer of just total fear. So my phone has blown up with concerned friends and family who want to do something. Welcome back to the Short Coat Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College. College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. With me today in the SCP studio, it is the pop punk energy of MD PhD student Riley B. and Bush. Hi. Nearby, feast your ears on the dynamically dulcet tones of MD PhD student Maddie Walleen. Dulcet? I don't I don't know if I like that. <laughs> it's sweet. That the means. sweet, the sweet voice. Basically. Okay, okay. Panning over to stereo right or left, I'm not really sure. You can hear the soothing soft rock sounds of M2 Mao Ye. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> and at the other end of the dial is the thrash metal energy of new co-host Tyler Adagosley. Hello. But if you thought we were the only people in the room, short coats, well, that's where you've made a terribly rude mistake. Also joining us is our guest on today's show, medical director at the Emma Goldman Clinic. And as as far as I'm concerned, friend of the Writing and Humanities program, Dr. Abby Hardy Fairbanks. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm glad you're here, Dr. Hardy Fairbanks, because today's conversation is going to be about the effects... That the U.S. Supreme Court's decision that uh, overturned Roe v. Wade will have on the training medical students and residents uh, will receive. But before I go, I would be remiss. The lawyers would come for me if I did not say. And me. And and, and they would come for Dr. Hardy Fairbanks if I did not say that nothing we say on today's show should be construed as coming from the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics, the Carver College of Medicine, the University of Iowa the state of Iowa, or anybody other than our own personal selves. These are our opinions. Okay, now that we've got that out of the way, let's uh, let's get to the meat and potatoes of today's show. How the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade affects our medical education. Dr. Hardy Famix, I think most shortcuts will know that the Supreme Court decision struck down the right to abortion as one guaranteed under the U.S. Constitution, meaning that Individual states have the ability to determine whether such a right exists within that state as they did before Roe v. Wade and other cases were decided in previous decades. And that has huge implications for for women across the country, but they also have implications for medical students. We should also say that not all states banned abortion or did so immediately or so absolutely. So no effect we discuss applies to every person or to every state that has limited access to abortion. So, man, I'm just going to keep disclaiming throughout the show. (laughs) But what effects have you and your colleagues in women's health been contemplating broadly? 
So there's multiple effects, ones that I think we still haven't even anticipated because this is just such an unprecedented time. Immediately following the SCOTUS decision, there were 13 states that already had trigger um, laws, what we refer to as trigger laws on the books, which essentially either immediately or I think the longest was within 30 days, made abortion illegal and unavailable in those states to varying degrees, but essentially Ill- illegal and unavailable. Some of those states are neighbors to where um, you guys are studying medicine. So Missouri, uh, Wisconsin, uh, Tennessee, multiple states. There are also several states that are in the process of working towards making abortion uh, unavailable. Those include you know, Nebraska, Iowa, Wyoming, multiple other states where legislators are scrambling in order to now without the constitutional protections pass things they would not have dared pass before. Uh, And you may have seen that that is happening in your state. The governor has directed the attorney general's office to attempt to vacate the injunction on a six-week ban that was permanently enjoined in 2018. And they also recently passed a 24-hour waiting period in the state of Iowa that went goes into effect July 8th, but is essentially in effect now. So the biggest implications to all of this is the rapidly changing landscape and the misinformation. So there's a ton of misinformation about where things are legal and where things aren't illegal and the impact of this on what care the average person can access. We're getting a ton of questions about, can I still get an IUD? Can I still do IVF? What's going to happen to my IVF embryos that are frozen? What about my eggs that are frozen? Can I still get the birth control pill? We're seeing cases of patients not being able to get medications for other medical purposes. So there was a case in South Carolina and Texas, I believe, where a patient was not able to get methotrexate for rheumatoid arthritis because that drug can be used as an abortion medication, although it's not. Uh, And she was of reproductive age. And so they would not supply her with her prescribed medication. Hmm. We know that there are facilities in Wisconsin and Missouri that are not treating stable ectopic pregnancies and they are transferring these patients. The, you know, an ectopic by definition isn't a viable pregnancy. It cannot become such. It's an immediate and imminent threat to a patient's life. But if the patient is stable, these laws have made it so that providers are uncomfortable caring for them in their medical facilities and are sending them to either more permissive states for facilities that do feel comfortable doing that. So I think that has huge implications for resident training for sure. This is from a very recent article by the Bixby College of Public Health showing the residency programs that are located across the United States. Almost 50% of OBGYN residents are in states that are likely to severely restrict or eliminate abortion access. So if you're a resident in in a state where abortion is now illegal, It really begs the question, how are we as as medical educators going to be able to get residents their required abortion training? In residencies, it's our CREOG. CREOG is our governing body and CREOG, it is a CREOG requirement that residents have access to abortion training. Mm, that seems like that a, seems tricky. Seems right like off a bit, the bat. I mean, there, it seems like the, the story here is basically one of uncertainty and people don't know what the knock on effects of that rule are going to be. 
I'm also really curious what will happen for those who are preparing to apply to residency right now. I've seen conversations online of people who are starting to weigh this kind of decision in these states that may or may not have access to abortion in their decision of where to go, both in maybe they want to be able to have training for that. And also, I've heard the conversation around maybe I'm going to try to go to these states because it might be easier to get into. I really want to go into OB-GYN. Are my chances going to be better going to a place where I might not get the best training possible, but there might be less applicants? And it's not necessarily because of their own personal views. It's simply because they're terrified to not match. Yeah, they're they're playing the numbers. Yeah. And then the other thing I read was for people who 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 actually don't want training in abortion, there may be programs that are like, well, we're only going to take people who want that training. And so that will limit those people as well. So. You know, I, it's it's such a bizarre situation that we're contemplating this. Let's talk about the current educational experience with reproductive care and, and abortion as a medical student. Yeah. So I think the experience that a medical student has in reproductive health care is as varied as as much as they want to get, but also in the institution that they're in. If you go to a medical school at a Catholic institution like I did, you're never going to see an abortion uh, or a tubal ligation during your medical school experience. Probably not going to see options counseling, which is where we talk to patients about options if they have an unplanned pregnancy. So those just won't be things you get exposure to. But if you're at an institution where that full spectrum of reproductive care is available, then it will be interwoven into the fabric of the care for patients that you see both in family medicine and likely ER and and for sure in obstetrics and gynecology. There is no medical student requirement for abortion education. So there isn't a required lecture or anything. There's not an APCO requirement for that. There isn't a requirement for exposure to that patient population. I think I have recognized and appreciated the medical students that I get to know who are very proactive in creating additional opportunities for students to learn, either through invited lectures or in your guys' seminar series that you have. We do workshops with medical students for choice where we learn about aspiration procedures and do them on melons because we can't get papayas here in the Midwest. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, you know, I think there are a lot of opportunities, but we have to kind of make them. We have to work harder to create them. So I, I think one thing that is confusing for a number of people is that Abortions aren't, aren't always elective. And you, and, you, and you alluded to that with ectopic pregnancies, but there's a number of conditions that termination of pregnancy solves or termination of, I don't even know if that's the right word. I'll let you talk about it. What are, am I, making, <laughs> I understand what you're trying to say. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of just alter the language a little bit. Please do. Language, language please do. is really important. And both in medicine and politics, language is really key to us understanding one another. So when I think about ectopic pregnancies, we do not define those as terminations because those pregnancies can never be viable. Yes. And okay. so abortion, induced abortion is the group of processes that these laws affect mostly. Unfortunately, there's trickle-down effects 
to these other things because the laws are written in ways that don't use precise language and medical terminology. But you're right. I, I try I try to steer away from the word elective because I think that has a, a stigmatic co- connotation to it. But there are some abortions that the indication is a medical one, and that can be a maternal health condition, a fetal anomaly, a placental abnormality, you know, any of those kinds of things. I would I would say that if you asked a patient at Emma Goldman if their procedure was elective, they would say no. I think the vast majority of the time they would say, I, I need this. I-, I I need to have this procedure done. It's not elective. I don't have a I don't have a choice. But their reason isn't a medical one. And in, 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 in our political sphere, we differentiate between the two. So some hospitals only provide medically necessary um, right. abortion care. Uh, and as you pointed out, nearly half of OBGYN residencies are in states where that's likely going to be difficult. And, and so because, you know, medically necessary abortion care is frequently, I mean, I think it's always a life-saving procedure. Is that... Is that right? Abortion, even in the outpatient setting for social reasons, is actually, in my opinion, always life-saving. Abortion is 14 times safer than continuing a pregnancy. So for whatever the reason, whether it be social or medical, it is always life-saving. But for sure, if someone has a medical complication, it's even more than 14 times safer than them continuing a pregnancy. So at its very base, it's life-saving. But then its saving properties get higher, the more complicated a pregnancy gets. There are a lot of resources circulating in which there are ways in which women may try to get abortions through pills or not. I'm curious, is there conversation within the medical sphere of how will we treat these women who may come in with complications from these medications, which are very safe regardless, but how will practitioners help these patients going through maybe side effects without indicating what they may have done? How do we keep this person safe from the legal system while also keeping them safe in the medical sense? Yeah, I, that is one of our huge concerns. You know, one of the pillars of medical ethics is confidentiality. And um, if the law were to create an environment where we needed to report patients for activities, such as we call it self-sourcing an abortion, okay. that would be, in my opinion, a very scary landscape. Uh, we are seeing patients potentially being quote unquote, reported uh, by physicians and providers or nurses after they come in with miscarriage symptoms. But I think what that says to me is, you know, why would a patient trust us with the truth Mm -hmm. if the law is put between us and the confidential relationship we can have with our patient? Uh, And that's a scary place to be, right? I feel like the trust patients can have in us because of that confidentiality is truly sacred. And once we have to be in a place where we need to be investigators, it takes away that trust and that relationship. And, And I don't know what it will do to how we how patients will present to us, Mm -hmm. but I think it will definitely complicate our ability to recognize what's going on and help patients in the best way possible. I mean, I, my mantra for medical education is that the patient has the answer to what is going on. They will tell you the answer if you open your ears and shut your mouth, but if they can't tell us the truth, how is, how is that possible? 
Self-sourcing and abortion is something that is being studied kind of across the United States, particularly in Texas, and has been studied for several years since the restrictions have gotten so intense. And there are quite a few states where mail order abortion medications are available. Of course, those are permissive states. You can't mail order abortion pills to Texas. Uh, so you have to, so patients are self-sourcing abortions outside of the medical system. And I think it, it begs the question whether is that, is that an act of independence and empowerment or is it an act of desperation? And there, I do know some social scientists that are looking into that, but I would say it's probably both. And of course, that potential mistrust is going to have effects on what patients will allow their doctors to do in other areas, which has knock-on effects as well for medical students and residents as to what patients will allow them to do. So I could see a situation where this factor, which is actually a number of things that are affecting this relationship can really sort of spread out into other areas of medicine. It is really interesting to think about how will these conversations go down? Will even doctors, residents, medical students no longer be able to counsel patients in abortion care within these states that it is not legal? And in a world in which trust for doctors is already dwindling, mm -hmm. it it adds this extra layer of like, oh no, and just total fear. So I don't know, Dr. Hardy Fairbanks, if you have any thoughts on what will happen with these conversations in clinic rooms. I mean, I, I, that's a really good point. You know, I mean, I do think these conversations are intimate and, you know, really they're hard, right? You know, a lot of trauma and stigma rooted in, in these kinds of conversations. And there have already been attempts at gag rules attached to funding for Title X. So Title X is a federally funded, it's the only federally funded program that's purely designed for contraceptive and reproductive health access. Oh. It's been in present since I want to say before Nixon. I, I could be wrong, but clinics can apply for Title X funding and through that funding, they can receive support, contraceptive devices, and they basically get funds to provide contraception training to their staff and care and education for patients. And it's a hugely successful program. During the Trump administration, the Title X funding, basically clinics were not allowed to discuss, refer, or provide information about abortion care. And that is why Planned Parenthood kind of stood their ground and said, we're not taking Title X money anymore. And that was huge. That is a huge chunk of money yeah. that Planned Parenthood used to take care of the most vulnerable patients. Uh, so that was a huge deal, right? That we couldn't talk about the full spectrum of options with patients in those settings. Uh, so yeah, I, I do, I do worry about that, but you know, any, any monies that are connected to legislative bodies can be used as leverage to change how we talk or act. And yeah, that's, it's a scary, that's a scary idea, but I could see how from a medical student perspective, it could, it could make it harder for you guys to access seeing this really important patient population. Any questions from you guys? I guess I was thinking about funding, you know, the Title 10 money, so they're not taking that part of money anymore. Is there other resources? You no, know, they can, like, plan a parenthood they can get. I feel like, you know, maybe they will, some, they will have some other resources. 
Yeah, well, thankfully, the election turned it around and Biden undid the gag rule. So the gag rule went away. And so Title X clinics no longer have that restriction. Title X clinics can talk about and refer for whatever they want. And the director of Population Affairs, federal the federal department that helps fund Title X, has said that she is committed to full-spectrum reproductive counseling for patients who receive Title X care. So thankfully, that's in place. It's up to individual states to, to maintain it, though. Individual states can make restrictions. Listeners, if you ask us a question, it means that I don't have to make something up to talk about on the show. And the show becomes what you want it to be. So send your questions to the shortcoats at gmail.com or leave a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about it on the show. I could see uh, another potential problem, which is will making abortion illegal potentially lead to education about abortion being illegal? And so this is this, I think, falls into that area where people just don't know the answer and so there may be hesitancy as to what can be what can be talked about in certain environments. Well, I would say we're already seeing that. So that's been something that's been happening for quite a while. So several states passed rules stating that Medicaid funding couldn't be used for the purpose of abortion training. And resident salaries are predominantly paid for by Medicare and Medicaid. Oh, right. So, for instance, Arizona, Kansas, a few other states have these rules. And in those states, the only way those residents can get abortion training and I'll be honest, most of them don't, is by basically quitting their job at the institution that they're a resident and then taking a job at Planned Parenthood for a month. I mean, residencies have had to be extremely creative about how to get around these kinds of rules. But if you're a residency program that isn't philosophically, ethically, and morally dedicated to making sure your residents have access to that full spectrum training, Maybe you have a way on paper, but no one ever does it. So I Hmm. think there's going to be a huge spectrum of what education is available. And on one end, you're going to have a way on paper so that you can keep your residency. But on the other hand, you're going to have programs that are dedicated and working really hard to try to get training. I think the other way that training will be restricted, you like I said, if, if monies, if state monies can't be used for education for abortion, you can't fund a resident to go out of state, mm-hmm. right? Like you can't pay for someone to live in a blue state for a month if you can't use, you know, Medicare, Medicaid funds for that. Mm-hmm. So that's definitely something that's important. Um, and also, I think this has become so politically divisive that I could see a world where where in order to appear more neutral, it's easier to get this out of the curriculum, right? So has there been any conversation around how certain organizations will support doctors through legal challenges and or what doctors are thinking about in terms of their own personal legality within the situation? There's three different penalties that some of these laws have enacted. One is patient penalty. So you can punish the patient, right? You can create a a criminal or civil punishment for the patient or someone that helps them. You And then the other two are really on physicians. And that can be loss of licensure, which is what is going on in Iowa with the 24-hour rule. So someone that violates it will, through the, through the Board of Medicine, can lose their license. So it's not a criminal or something like that. But then the third one is a criminal consequence, either monetary or 
you know, criminal prison time for the physician. And I think that is a really disturbing idea that, you know, you could be providing what is truly considered a human right uh, and go to jail for it. So far that hasn't happened, right? Like none of that has happened. And I, I think I could certainly see a world where if that did, the ACLU legal mm-hmm. system would be all over that. And maybe, you know, I, I'm just going to throw this out there. Maybe that has to happen. Maybe at some point that someone has to have that happen for us to get into a court situation where we can fight this. I, I don't know the right answer. I'm curious. So is that any like is it just the breaking of quote Iowa law is that what causes you to lose your medical license I would have assumed that the board of medical licensures is outside the scope of the Mm. Iowa law system so I must be very wrong the board of medicine is appointed by the governor Mm. that's okay yeah I had a medical student ask me the other day like but they're doctors right and I said yes but I mean, they're doctors that are appointed for a purpose. And it's also important to realize that, uh, you know, doctors aren't monolithic in their support for right. abortion. 100%. Um, so one thing I feel like I know about laws and legislation in general is that there are unintended consequences and they can be pretty uh, severe. Have you imagined other effects a ban on abortions in other medical fields besides OB? Or in other ways besides limiting abortion? I was thinking about on Twitter recently, I've seen like screenshots of people on TikTok who are, you know, out of desperation, kind of posting information about, what did you say, self-servicing abortion? Self-sourcing. Self-sourcing. Yeah, or self-sourcing or self-managing. Yeah. Okay. Okay. But yeah, like using different natural products and like not medication. And I've seen physicians who are kind of like, posting those and being like, don't do this, like the the side effects, the, that's a poison, like that you're going to really hurt yourself. So I can see in like emergency medicine, just treating a lot of patients who are struggling after trying to self-source an abortion for in a, in a means that's unsafe. Yeah. Another one we that has been talked about in, in some way on social media and just online that we haven't talked about, too, is kind of this mix up that people have had between plan B versus abortion pills and how mm-hmm. people are yes. not getting proper care for whatever their reason that they need this emergency contraception, which is not an abortion pill. Plan B right. is not an abortion pill. And they're not getting it because of the legal implications of it might look like it. And that's really scary, too. I mean, that's a, that's the thing about laws is that they can be applied in ways that were not originally intended. I think that speaks to the fact that although, in my opinion, this legislation is put up as something out of a place of protection and public health and safety, they're not written in a way that allows an interpretation in order to do that. They're they're written in a way that specifically lends itself to confusion and uh, broader interpretation of what's going on. And so I think if a law is going to be misapplied, like for sure, this is going to be one because they're written in a non-medical vague way. You know, Mm -hmm. you put a speed limit up. I know I can't go 55 miles an hour. You know, things in, in medicine are not black and white. They are gray across the board. And so I think that they're very difficult to read and interpret. They're not written with the with the help of 
knowledgeable abortion providers, you know? So I think it's, they're not written in a way that allows interpretation to be specific. So how, my next question is, how do you think about the guidelines now or before this situation for treating a pregnant person versus how will they change once these limitations are fully in effect? So I think that in general, for knowledgeable OBGYNs, one of our modus operandi is to not punish people for being pregnant. We don't withhold treatments. We don't withhold diagnostic procedures for someone because they're pregnant. You have a discussion about the risks and the benefit. There's no medicine that's off the table. There's no treatment or diagnostic procedure that is off the table. It's all about what are the risks and benefits and what does the patient feel like is best for them. But if you are a radiologist and you think you could get in trouble for doing a CT scan, but then the patient miscarries, you know, I could definitely see how that would be problematic. I think I am hopeful that it will not change that philosophy, that the pregnant person is our patient and that we have to take care of them to the fullest extent that medicine will allow us. Uh, But I do think, unfortunately, there is a lot of misinformation and a lot of lack of knowledge, both in obstetrics and outside of it, about what pregnant people can and can't have. There's a really good book. I bought it for everyone I know for Christmas. <laughs> it's called Belabored, A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women. And the author's name is Liz Lentz. And she, I think she's in Cedar Rapids, but she's, it's really incredible. And it's the idea that what is more important, the vessel or what they're carrying. And I think that it's got to be a balance, right? And the balance, the person who decides that balance is the pregnant person, right? Mm-hmm. So students will ask me, you know, what is a risky medical, like what condition is, what's a condition for which a patient has to have an abortion? And my response is a condition that increases the risk of pregnancy related mortality to a degree that is unacceptable to the patient. Okay. As a, as a person who has been pregnant, I accepted that risk of mortality and morbidity. I took it on maybe a little unwittingly, but I still did it. But if someone has a medical condition that increases the risk of mortality to whatever degree is unacceptable to them, aren't we in a position to say, you're right, you know, like you don't have to take on that level of risk. Um, But I don't know how that equation will look going forward. You know, will that there are very few like this patient's life is right now in imminent danger. There's very few of those in intrauterine pregnancies, right? They come up. They come up, but they're pretty far and few between. It's more of a, this is a risk to her health, their health. And that's a, that's a great area, you know? And maybe that balance, that equation is going to shift from being something where it is what is acceptable or unacceptable to the, the pregnant person versus what's acceptable or unacceptable in the legal realm. It's a really fascinating take that I had not heard before of kind of the way OB-GYNs think of the pregnant person, the pregnant patient that they're treating. So I appreciate that. What was the book title again? Just so we can really. Yes, it's called Belabored. It's so good, y'all. Oh, my gosh. I have it here. It's Belabored, Belabored, A Vindication of the Rights of Pregnant Women. Perfect. I don't know Liz Lentz, but I just have to tell you it's one of the best books I've read in a long, long time. 
I was thinking about, you know, so I've read some, some, some guidelines offered up as possibilities. And I wonder if you'll react to some of them. I mean, first of all, be, be familiar with mandated state reporting laws and applicable hospital guidance on things like drug testing, understand the potential consequences of reporting the results of such tests to the authorities. Don't do urine slash blood drug or alcohol screens unless it's medically indicated for both for, you know, just, just for people who can become pregnant or who, who, or who are pregnant, understand the consequences of reporting maternal drug, alcohol use, be familiar with community resources and be cognizant of cognizant of biases and always remember, and these are not my guidelines. Always remember that what you know is the barest fraction of the story and that you're not required most of the time, I think, to be an arm of the law. I mean, keep the, keep the objective of keeping mothers and babies healthy in, at the forefront. So those are the guidelines now that I think a lot of physicians operate under. Hopefully, I don't know, I guess it'd be cool if those guidelines could continue because after all, the patient is supposed to be the person who you're dealing with. Yeah, I think they really do need to continue. I think, unfortunately, the reason that those guidelines exist is because there is already some prosecutorial precedent for for pregnant persons who use substances, be they legal or not legal or prescribed, who have been prosecuted for child abuse, even though it's by the legal definition, a pregnancy is not a person until they're born. And so, but some states have prosecuted people for these things. And in the state of Iowa, we are required to report positive drug screens to the state. So even for marijuana. So I think it is really important to do drug screens when you think they're medically important, you know. But yeah, I think that these are really problematic. There's a really great documentary called Birthright, A War Story, where they go through the stories of four individuals who, in the kind of, I think, opinion of the documentary, their their bodily autonomy was imposed upon by the legal system for multiple different reasons. But one of the stories is someone who used a prescribed substance during pregnancy and was was prosecuted for it. Are there other examples of mandatory reporting? I'm thinking of cases in, I don't even know if abuse is. What are other examples, I guess, of mandatory reporting? And what typically ends up happening when it makes it to the state level? Are they always prosecuted against? Is it just kind of information that people are keeping in some record? Or how does that work? I think varies. There's multiple levels of reporting that is required. You as a physician will be a mandatory reporter for a patient who is an imminent threat to themselves or someone else or an unsafe situation for someone who like for a child or a someone who isn't their own guardian. Right. So like someone who's disabled or a child or a elderly person who can't care for themselves. So those are all instances. And I'm sure there's more of mandatory reporting. The mandatory reporting that we tend to run into would be like if a patient reported um, an unsafe situation with one of their children. But if a patient tells me my ex-husband is after me, you know, 
I'm not a mandatory reporter for her because she is an individual. She can make her own decisions about what she wants and can do. And I can't make those for the patient. But if the person is someone who has a guardian, then then you're responsible for that. The There are federal rules that institutions must have methods and policies and procedures for the identification of maternal substance use in order for reporting for child welfare. And that looks different depending on where you're at. And that reporting doesn't have to go to DHS, but in the state of Iowa, that's the resource that that reporting goes to. So any positive infant core drug screen gets reported to DHS. And it is technically a child abuse report if there's an illegal substance, including marijuana. So, you know, I would say it probably varies on the person's history with DHS and, you know, all those kinds of things. But it does create a relationship with DHS, which for some patients can be adversarial and very scary and traumatizing. And for some patients, it actually can get them hooked into really good services, which is the goal, right? But it And I think, you know, I work with patients with substance use in pregnancy. And what I think is the most important thing we can do is be open about that. So someone tells me they smoke tobacco during pregnancy and be like, hey, just so you know, that's on our list of things for which the pediatricians are going to test the umbilical cord. And I just think it's really important to be super open and honest with patients because you know what? Most of the time they're like, okay, fine. But when it happens without their knowledge, that's when they get upset. And I would be upset too. Yeah, I think hearing that list in the context of it all, thinking about what if you had to report patients who may come in having, oh, what was the term again for self-service? Self-source. Self-source. Thank you. I was like, self-something. I'm going to get it. You're going to get a lecture today, right? (laughs) I'm trying to remember it and I need to write it down. I'm terrible at remembering things, but it will be interesting because in the context of what you were laying out there of kind of this is important for DHS or this is important for the patient's health. To me, it doesn't seem like it fits in that context other than just people are coming after it at some state legal level. And ethically, the lines feel so blurred, even though I know that it's likely that it will in somewhere, in some capacity, be required for practitioners to self-report this patient who has come in having self-sourced an abortion. And like we had said, kind of back to the very beginning of our conversation, it disrupts the entire trust system of that patient within the medical system. And I really like how you said that, especially when from a abortion perspective, if someone self-sources or self-manages their own abortion, medically, I have no test. Right. Like mm-hmm. I can't do a mesoprostol level and be like, oh, oh, you did this. You know, it is purely patient report. Otherwise, it is indistinguishable from a natural miscarriage process. So we really are getting in the but yet at the same time, what that patient took and when they took it really has like unlimited medical knowledge value to me being able to take care of them. But I don't think they would tell I, I wouldn't. I mean, I can right. see a world where they wouldn't tell us. Unlike a drug screen where, you know, there's an objective nature to it, you know, I mean, unless someone leaves something in their cervix, I can't tell if they took medicine or not. I think it opens up a world for a lot of reporting that may not be warranted by objective evidence. And that's an extra scary world in which it may, in fact, just be a miscarriage. And that person now 
is kind of at battle with this legal system because there might have been a practitioner that reported them for something they didn't need to be reported I think, for. I think that's a major fear of yeah. people that I'm just seeing in forums and things outside of medicine. I think that's a major fear of yeah. people. It would be a major fear for my own self. I think if in a world in which I myself was pregnant and had a miscarriage in a state in which I then had to go to the hospital and or be taken care of. I would be terrified that they're going to accuse me of something I did not do. And from Mm -hmm. a patient perspective and a practitioner perspective, like what if you don't get people coming in? Because correct me if I'm wrong, there are some miscarriages in which medical treatment is actually necessary, correct? Yeah. I mean, we give patients the option for a medication or a procedure. Yeah. Yeah. I would worry. I would be terrified that somebody would in some way think that I maybe did something that I didn't if it was in a legal sphere in which I was not allowed to do that thing. Right. Yeah. It just creates like a, an, a hostility and an animosity between yes. the institution, well, you know, personhood and medicine. Yeah. That shouldn't be there. Shortcoats, if you're enjoying our conversation today, I'd be grateful if you'd let people know by posting a story on Instagram or Facebook or tweeting about us. And don't forget to tag us in your post. Thank you. As future physicians, how do you see that sort of, like you said, breakdown of that relationship? How do you see that having an influence on what medical students do and choose to do going forward? It's a great question. I think about this a lot. I've thought about it a lot in the last week as a person who's toyed around with the idea of going into OB-GYN and how kind of like I want to be that person for all patients someday and have that incredible trust and relationship and going into a system where that trust is already it's almost like infringed upon by some outside source. It's like having to have a conversation in code with someone. And as a person who wants the independence to have like a medical practice that is their own and that is best for their patients, the idea of like some other source kind of telling me what to do doesn't feel so great. And it does start to make me wonder about which path I'd like to take in medicine. If this is It's a war that I want to fight personally, but is it a war that I want to fight professionally, especially with the implications that could come down on me as my own, like, provider? I mean, you would have to think about it. Yeah. You know, like, there's already things that medical students take into account Mm -hmm. revolving around, you know, lifestyle, Mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. You know, whether it's potential earning capacity the number of hours that you have to keep and patient of, population, patient a lot population, of people the choose, amount of stress yeah. that you would experience in that job. And speaking of stress, here's a little extra stress for you. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's got, I mean, it's got to make a difference, but I guess I don't see there as, and maybe this is just looking at it from the perspective that it is now in which a lot of these questions are unanswered, but I don't see many fields in which there is such an overarching presence of law that is now like requiring you to do your job differently than you want to medically and I think that is what I come down to in like this feeling of almost hopelessness and going and thinking about going into that area which is like I can't even 
I'm not going to be able to do the job that I want to do for these people. I know of one career. What is it? Criminal. Okay. (laughs) It would be fair. But I think that's kind of what weighs on me in in terms of becoming a future practitioner and how to do the best by the people (laughs) and the best by myself in the law. And so... And I would, I would counter that with that is what will make you an excellent and amazing physician that your patients will benefit immensely from that caring, that giving a crap about how they do and what access they have to whatever care that is. And I think the more kind of difficult the system becomes to navigate, it tends to empower us to care less. Right. Right. So I think because that's how we protect ourselves, you know, if if this is always the struggle, you know, then it's a lot easier to be like, I'm just not going to care about it. It's going to be fine. You know, it's going to take care of itself. But I think what makes a great physician is someone who can't let go of that caring, you know, and so you just have to make sure you really take care of yourself and you have to take time to, you know, take a break from it because you're right. It is exhausting. It's exhausting. It sort of makes me like it makes me think about something that I've also been thinking about and people telling practitioners or people who are aspiring to be practitioners to just practice somewhere where abortion is legal. And then people are like, you can't that's just abandoning a ton of people, a ton of vulnerable people who need people like me who are willing to, you know, try to be that person who wants to provide every everything that they can. So it's true on an individual basis, but on a population level, that just doesn't work. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't know. I think that there's something too. even if you can't legally provide an abortion to be a provider who cares about your patients who are going through this. So even though they can't access that medical care, I still feel like there's some comfort in having a provider who is like on your side and however they can kind of do that legal dance. Try to. Mm hmm. Try to I think counsel seeing you. things from your side. I mean, we always think about that as future practitioners is like you want to be able to see the patient's perspective from their side and what better way to do it than try to help them navigate yeah. a legal field in which is really difficult. I guess my mind is just going to like what a shame it would be for people who are ho- wanting to provide that service to not abandon a population that needs them, but like yeah. to have nobody if that, you know, if it only draws providers to a state who are who have you know, one view, you're missing so much diversity. I, I think that that's another implication that I have been thinking about. Let's uh, let's switch gears a little bit. I think it's fair to say that many physicians and medical learners see themselves in an advocacy role for their individual patients, but also for their patient populations that they work with or, or in other sort of sus- uh, sus- advocacy on the societal level or, or even practitioner level. Right, right. And I wanted to talk a little bit, you know, the AMA endorses a strong commitment to physician advocacy, stating that physicians must advocate for social, economic, educational, and political changes that ameliorate suffering and contribute to human well-being. And since we have you here, and I know that you are a physician advocate, uh, Dr. Hardy Fairbanks, what does physician advocacy look like? What, What you may picture is a physician in a white coat standing, you know, sort of at the state capitol or the White House or whatever, sort of advocating for policy change. But there are other ways to be an advocate. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, I think there are so many ways to be an advocate. And I, you know, since Friday, my phone has blown up with concerned friends and family who want to do something. And I understand that. Like, I understand that deep need to do something to help things be better. But I also think being an advocate, it can mean something as simple as being a being a citizen who votes, right? So your vote is truly an act of advocacy. It is from a practitioner perspective, it's being a knowledgeable, compassionate practitioner. You know, educate yourself on what the rules are, educate yourself on what's available and the evidence and, you know, walk into a patient room with an open heart, open mind and be there for patients. And that is truly an act of advocacy that one patient encounter can change their entire experience and outlook on medicine. Other things that I really think people can do, you know, donating money is one option. I recognize you guys don't have any and that's okay. (laughs) Donate. um, You can donate your time. I don't know. I know you don't have a ton of that too, but like clinics are always looking for patient escorts and people to stack mailers. You can work for political campaigns that you find inspirational, you know, have a party at your house where you invite like-minded people and encourage them to bring one person who thinks different and sit down and talk about it in a constructive way. You know, I think those are really, really important things. Talk to people talk, 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 don't stop talking. Um, you know, we know from other movements that when you put a face and a, and a soul on an issue, it changes the way people feel about it. So, I mean, and I think that's one of the issues that has kind of led us up to this point is that people who have had abortions have felt so stigmatized. Mm -hmm. They haven't shared their experience very often. It's not to say that's anyone's fault. Like they were made to feel that way. But I think the more we can talk about how we feel about this, how important it is from a medical perspective and a personal perspective, we need to do those things and we need to take care of ourselves, right? Like I, you know, self-care is an act of advocacy. If you are burnt out, you are not going to have the emotional energy to stuff envelopes or make social media posts or make podcasts, you know? So I think those are the the big things, you know, join organizations like Medical Students for Choice and, uh, you know, the Midwest Access Coalition and these groups that work outside of medicine to help people access care. Uh, those are kind of my my first ideas. Right, right. You're a student. People in your state care about you and what you think and what you think you need. So, you know, write an article, write an editorial, get it published. I have a question, I guess. You know, at Carver, we have those mobile clinics and that kind of helps those underserved population with the, you know, the abortion ban. I feel like these people are going to be having more disadvantages and as medical students i don't know if there's anything we can do that to specifically address that kind of problem for these underserved population oh i mean i think so the mobile clinic is huge it's such an amazing benefit to our community and to you guys right for your educational reasons but i mean such a huge benefit to our community i think in this sphere where the mobile clinic can be most helpful is tamping down misinformation, letting those patients in that population know that as of right now, abortion is accessible, available, and legal. 
and that there are ways to help people access funding, even funding to travel. So, th- so those resources are there. The other thing is eliminating barriers to contraception access and giving accurate, unbiased information about contraception so people can access the options that are best for them. We did a study on a homeless population in Iowa City. And what we found though is that most people had insurance coverage. So coverage wasn't an issue, but there was a lot of mistrust of the healthcare system and of contraception in general that we were able, you know, we did a pre-post test and we were able to improve that knowledge and perception with some unbiased education. So I think that it can have a huge impact on uh, helping those populations access preventative care. But in the end, you know, contraception isn't perfect, right? There will be unplanned pregnancies. And so just really helping people with information and the tools to be able to access the care that they need. Since the landscape is changing so rapidly, where's the best place to direct people like in Iowa, for example, about where to get the most up to date information so that they're not misinformed? (laughs) Yeah. So I would have, I mean, so if they're using a phone, I would have them call the Emma Goldman clinic or Planned Parenthood. Unfortunately, if you call Planned Parenthood or not, unfortunately, it's just like the way it is. You you get the national number, you don't get like a local affiliate. So the Emma Goldman clinic is a nice way for patients to be able to talk to a person who is local and knows what's going on here. The other, you know, the Emma Goldman website, Planned Parenthood websites, uh, those are probably the best ones for local information on a national level. The Guttmacher Institute, this is more like practitioner level information, Mm -hmm. the Guttmacher Institute, the ACLU website, those are good ones. So I want to thank you for joining us on the show today Mm -hmm. um, to sort of prognosticate with us and try to figure out where we're headed. Um, You know, probably some of the things that we've talked about will turn out to be incorrect and, you know, keep your keep your ear to the ground, I guess, to try to figure out what's, what's coming. And I I think that's important is to try, I mean, we can try our best to try to predict, but I think one of the things that is also, it's like the eternal struggle, right. Is to be okay in this moment and to deal with this moment and try not too much to anticipate it because it's, I can't control what's going to happen, but just don't forget that this is not a hopeless situation. Okay, November is not very far away. And so I think there are some real possibilities for ways for a lot of this to turn around. It's just going to take a lot of work. Okay. Again, thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Hardy Fairbanks. Yeah, thank you guys. And thank you, Tyler, Riley, (laughs) Maddie, Mao. Thanks for being on the show with me today. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. What kind of subarachnoid hemorrhage would I be if I didn't thank you, Shortcoats, for making us a part of your week? If you're new here and you like what you heard today, follow the show wherever fine podcasts are available, like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. Our producers this time are AJ Chowdhury and Riley Bean Bush. Our editor for this one is Katie Hyam Kessler. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine student government and ongoing support from the Writing Humanities program. Our music is by Dr. Vox and Catmosphere. I'm Dave Etler saying don't let the bastards get you down. Talk to you in one week. Hi, short coats. Look, life in medical education, life in America, life in the world is often difficult. And I often wish I could help. All I have is this podcast, but 
In my wildest dreams, you have the support you need to lead a life of your choosing. You deserve to be happy, healthy, and successful in whatever ways you define those words. So if you need support because you've experienced racism, discrimination, harassment, mental health crises, I want you to be able to get the help that you need. And so I'm going to put some links in the show notes to some resources that you can use. But the bottom line is that for what it's worth, I see you. I know you're out there. I wish I could do more. Maybe I can in ways that I don't understand yet or know about. But I see you and I'm glad you're here and other people are too. This Short Code Podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at mededmedia.com.